if we don't get clarity on the tools, on the processes, on the standards, then we have a strategic disadvantage. If we get that right, I think it's actually an advantage um, because it allows us to really build that trustworthy AI on a much better level as currently AI systems are being developed. Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI, Mind Machines Integrating the Sand. Thanks for tuning in to our geeky podcast to discuss the fascinating field of AI and machine learning, corporate craziness, passion for technology and the role of humans. We are Uli and Avery, your hosts for this episode. Yeah, and Aubrey, I guess, you know, the European AI Act is quite a hot topic currently, is it? Huh? Oh, definitely. The EU AI Act has certainly been a hot topic of discussion aiming to ensure ethical and responsible AI practices. And I'm curious to see how it will shape the future of AI development and deployment in Europe. And I guess it is, I don't know, it, it feels a bit of a delicate, this, uh, somehow a discussion, but also a bit of a balance, right? That we need to take and not strike because it's, it's somehow, right? Regulation, innovation versus consumer protection. It is crucial for the development of AI technology, but also, you know, how do we keep, you know, how do we secure Europeans' competitiveness? What is with prioritization of the protection of individual rights and well-being? So that's, that's crazy, is it? Yeah, it's certainly not an easy topic. And I wonder how companies are supposed to prepare for this tremendous regulation that's coming up. Uh, we should certainly have a closer look at this. And you know what? We have what? just the right genius mind here, here with us go. today. What a coincidence. And I can really um, already promise you a lot of exciting insights regarding the developments of AI in the EU. So let me introduce you to none other than Andreas Liebe, the CEO of the Applied AI Initiative and the Applied AI Institute for Europe. Andreas is dedicated to keeping the European industry competitive and relevant in the accelerating AI era. As a member of prestigious organizations and initiatives such as the AI Council in Bavaria, the Global Partnerships on AI, the Expert Group Innovation and Commercialization of the Global Partnerships and AI Initiative, Andreas has contributed to shaping the landscape of AI initiatives worldwide, ensuring that Europe remains a relevant player in this dynamic field. And his remarkable ability to stay ahead of the curve and his intimate knowledge of the latest AI trends and developments position him as a true thought leader. And we're very excited to listen and learn from him today. Well, Andreas, so, that, was the, that was the longest introduction in Lai that we ever, 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 ever had. How, what an opening, right? It is. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me here. I'm really excited to be here. And Andreas, to kick things off, uh, could you maybe share with us what initially fascinated you about the field of AI and really sparked your passion to become a driving force behind the advancement of this transformative technology? Yes, yeah, sure. So um, when I started with that um, kind of endeavor in, in the Applied AI initiative, that was actually um, about 2016, and I did lots of um, projects with industry companies on variety of um, innovative uh, technologies like um, CRISPR or uh, the, the kind of upcoming blockchain 
technologies or AI. And actually, one of the first projects was with Siemens together um, in, in a very uh, kind of uh, the, the predecessor of, of Next47 was at that point in time. And, and the question was, OK, how can, we, can AI actually change uh, business models? And then in um, 2016, um, we saw also in that whole field of, of Unternehmertum uh, on, on the startup side, really breakthroughs um, through uh, the TensorFlow, through the GPU acceleration, and more or less overnight, teams could train really, really cool models. And at that point in time, we said, well, there is now a few breakthroughs that will kind of really help us enter a new era. And at the same time, a friend of mine founded one of the most successful AI startups in the US, um, receiving more than 140 million euros in seed uh, capital. And with that, we went then to, to the German government and said, hey, well, there is something coming up that's called AI, which is so transformative for all our innovation activities. We have to have a strategy around that topic. And at that point in time, it was... Um, uh, quite a while before there was a German AI strategy. And, um, and, and the feedback was, yes, that sounds nice, but we, we, there, there are many other things. Um, we will kind of in, in the future have a look at that. And we went back and said, well, we, we actually have to start. So we created that idea around helping each other, um, answering mm. questions together, because every one of us will face the same questions and, and challenges. And if we do that together in Europe, um, we actually are much more um, efficient in, in kind of applying the resources, the limited resources we have also compared to other um, countries and, and continents like, like the US or like China. Um, and actually, Uli, you were one of the first ones. We went into a sparing on that idea and um, we were very happy to have you as one of the first organizations to really support that idea of, of the joint Applied AI initiative. Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for, you know, um, uh, I think you're awesome, right? Um, you're, you're a, a truly thought leader and you're really bold and enough. But well, I guess we're talking about a bit of applied AI in aspects in, in a second. So if we come back a bit of, you know, we're living in a software world, right? So software is still cloud-based software. Maybe overall software is eating the world, you know, as Andreessen said, right? Where do you see the greatest difference from the, for the audience out there that maybe, you know, not too close in AI? You know, what's the difference between, is it just a piece of software? Or what is for you the biggest difference between, you know, distributed computing software, running operating systems and AI? So when I do, do my talks, I, I do simplify, I admit that um, it's a simplified version, but I always say AI is not software. It's different and it has mm -hmm. four reasons. The first one is we train on data. While software is written by source code, we now train on data. That's the first mm -hmm. one. The second is we have a much more experimental approach. So you don't kind of code line by line, feature by feature, but you train 10, 20, 100, 1,000 models, and ultimately you, you are there at the model that you actually want to have. So it's a little bit more on, on that experimental side, much more like in, in a pharma company where you try to find a, a nice new treatment um, and, and you do these experiments one after the other. Um, and then that has some implications on how you kind of track that, how you protocol it and, and so on. The third is that um, you can't really um, kind of test it. You can just evaluate if with the test data that you have, if it works in that scenarios that you tested. But you cannot be sure that in um, kind of the, the 
inference in, in the application, it actually works the same way as you did. You can just uh, kind of assign a probability and say, well, with that type of in, in that in, in that test that I did, it might work also out there, but that stability and um, and, and and kind of reproducibility is an issue. And and then the fourth one is that you can't simply write an update because you found an error. You have to retrain, so, right? Mm -hmm. If you if if the model is is not performing uh, well anymore, you have to start the training process again. Um, you have to have the data and, and you do that retraining. So there are these four components that uh, distinguish the software from AI that has a lot of implications on how we use these systems. And mm -hmm. as you did already talk about it or introduce it, um, yeah, we will also talk a little bit about the AI Act. So that's also why I think the EU said, well, we have to have a specific regulation because AI is not classical software. Yeah, if we now convert a bit of, you know, let's talk about the Applied AI initiative. You were and are is, is still, for me, you know, the, the engine, <laughs> even though your team is massive now, like enormous what you sparked with, with, with Applied AI, right? Driving force, inspiration, founding, you know, um, and following, following a bit the progress, how you, you know, from an early idea to now, wherever I go in Europe, right? And we're talking about AI and, and Europe and German, right? Then applied AI is mentioned. So that's an awesome achievement, I must admit, right? And so can you can share a bit of, you know, in a, in a fast paced manner. So what motivated to embark, you touched a bit, but also how do you keep that, you know, how do you keep that scale going? You know, what's, you know, it's, it's a great achievement, I must admit, already. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, first of all, yeah, I, I think it's it's on the one side, it's it's a great achievement. On the other side, you constantly have to reinvent yourself, and that's exhausting. I can tell you, you constantly need to challenge and and adapt uh, to new technologies, to to new uh, developments. But but the kind of the real driver for what we did was really that point of, I personally really want that we in Europe can kind of be shapers of an AI age. I talked about an AI era um, that we that we want to live in. So it needs to be based on our values. We need to have some um, industry here that still is competitive using AI technologies. We can only achieve that if we are active enough, if we are really kind of leading in that technologies. Uh, and only then we can shape. Otherwise, we can just look at from the outside of what's happening in other parts of the world. And that's uh, that's then not something that, that actually I want to do. So that's kind of the main driver. And then we kind of really started in, in the early days with that idea of uh, you can think of a, a gym. You go in, you have kind of the exercises. And, and I thought, well, we provide all the tools. Right. So you as a company come in, you get the tools and, and you do your stuff and you get better. And then we realized that, well, that actually makes uh, it makes sense for companies that actually exactly know what they need, and then they can improve on that exercise. Mm. But most people need a personal trainer to get fit in the first place. They need to get explained of how to use these types of tools, of what's kind of the, the roadmap um, of the muscles you train, and, and you need to start slow and then kind of constantly move. And that's when we created that AI journey logic to really systematically advance companies. And that's now our really our, our core idea of getting 
organizations from lower levels of AI maturity to the highest levels of AI maturity. And with those that are already leading, the question is now, can we still improve? What's the next level? What's the next things? What are new technical advancements? How that will adapt? And that's kind of where we also then, then work together on that kind of edge, the leading edge. But the, the goal really is to get as many companies as possible from these lower stages of the AI maturity to the high levels. And yes, we do that now with, with more than 100 people, actually. So it's, it's really kind of a, was, a, was an interesting ride from, from in, in the last five years. And can you can you elaborate? You know how many partners are onboarded? Um, the more than hundred people is awesome, and and you have also different location. Can you give us a bit of a, a glimpse on the reach? So we we are now here in, in Munich, actually. So for the audience out there, most a lot of audience comes from international flavor here. So greets greets to the world, I must admit. So, but can you give a bit of a you know the relationship on you know German and, and Munich yeah. and, and Europe? Yeah, so we, we um, yeah, we started in Munich. Um, since last year, we actually um, did a, a major um, carve-out from, from the Unternehmertum, which uh, was kind of the, that organization where I was part of that, that um, large and one of the largest innovation and entrepreneurship centers in Europe, uh, became a subsidiary, and we did a joint venture with the Innovation Park AI in Heilbronn which is now Applied AI as a 50-50 joint venture between these two organizations. And then we have a non-for-profit organization for educating um, professionals on AI. So we have these two organizations. One is really focusing on advancing companies. One is focusing on educating professionals and the highest standards of, of AI development. Both of these are under that purpose-driven umbrella of actually simply advancing Europe and keeping us competitive. And it's a really, really unique setting now with um, the Unternehmertum, which is owned by Susanne Klatten on the one hand and um, kind of her engagement of, of keeping um, Europe innovative, of supporting uh, entrepreneurs and startups. And on the other side, in the EPI in Heilbronn is, is kind of owned ultimately by, by Mr. Schwarz. And, and his effort to also staying innovative and advancing Europe. So you have these two very um, unique individuals um, that, that kind of power us to drive that, that goal of, of advancing Europe. And what we did also in the past years is really to help other um, national initiatives across Europe, but we're also in, in close contact with other regions in the world, like Singapore, like uh, Canada, and, and are in, in, in close exchange with them. On, on really the state of the art of how you systematically advance whole industries in, in advancing AI. Right, awesome. Uh, maybe a question, because um, and I, I admire, you know, we have a, a great framework about AI majority, right, which you provide for companies to get a sparring bit of outside-in perspective, right, how do you, you know, refer to your peers. If we look now in Germany, right, a bit of, you know, and you compared the last, let's say, three years to now, How do you perceive now the maturity, like the AI maturity, you know, the technology readiness in adopting this awesome technology stack, right, in cooperation? Has this significantly changed? Do you see progress on the organization, given all the insights in, into the, the partners? Mm. Um, from my perspective, so, so we distinguish um, five different levels in, in that AI maturity is not started at all, you don't do something with AI 
then you experiment a little bit. You have the one or the other showcase. You get to know how, how kind of to use AI. Then you're a practitioner. You have a, a one or a few cases really in, in production. You get the first benefits from that technology. Then you're really professionally using AI across the world at scale um, in, in a reliable way. And then you are a shaper, really an AI-first company. Mm. Um, so now... Um, what happened in, in the past few years. So first of all, in that shaper, it's actually really, really hard to get as an um, established company um, through a transformative approach. So we see here lots of the startups that really built up their own institutional organizations as an AI-first company or companies um, that uh, develop or, or build new business units that really say, well, we start Greenfield for, for having an AI-first approach or rather digital players. Um, younger players to, to actually get to that AI-first approach. For the other um, um, maturity levels, um, we had a lot of companies that did not start at Layer uh, uh, three years ago. And that, in, especially in the past few months, changed to at least getting to experimental. So, so many now see the potential of AI. They understand that you actually have to do something around that technology because it really affects your work um, and, and they now get started. Um, the companies that started a few years ago um, advanced from, from that um, experimental level to the practitioner and now are at the edge of getting to professional. Um, that step to professional is actually really, really hard. Um, there is um, um, what we say you get from something like an um, a, a workshop type setting where, for example, one person builds a car to a productionized setting where the organization empowers people to build cars in a reliable and high quality way. And, and that step from, hey, I have a couple of individuals that build an AI center of excellence and they mm -hmm. develop AI solutions the way they want to do it to an organizational empowerment of helping the teams to develop AI, that's actually a massive step. Uh, and that's where we see the, the, the most advanced organizations typically right now at that kind of step from, from that individual one to the more organizational development um, in AI. So progress? In yeah, Germany. the progress that it, it was there, um, <laughs> it, it's still, but I, I mean, if you look at the average, so so you you advance at the lower end, yeah. that the, the ones that work are consistently progressing. Is it from a global perspective really enough? No, I don't think so. I, I think in, on the average industry, um, what we've seen in, in China and other countries, they really advanced to that to that professional level. They try out things at scale, 100 million users testing and, and uh, deploying AI at scale. So so at that level, we are not at the average. We, we, we kind of lag behind um, that. We, we advance slowly, but I see others actually racing. And we, we need to really keep up um, and with the speed of development also globally. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that Many more companies need to very, very systematically now approach AI to really advance that to get to that professional level because that's where competitiveness is. That's where value creation really is. Before that, it's all nice. Um, if you have a couple of use cases, yes, you get some benefits. It's all nice. But the real value lies at the professional use.
And this is actually a perfect transition to talk more about Germany and the EU and regulations. And Ooh, with you, that's we a have better downer uh, or not? I don't know, right? Is that? Let, let, let's see. <laughs> and with you, we have a real AI expert on the show, and maybe you can uh, give us and the audience a little overview about what the purpose of the AI Act actually is and how it will influence um, regulation and AI development here in, in Germany and in, in Europe. Yeah, so um, I, I think that starts really at the distinction of software and AI. Because you have data and not source code, because you have that very experimental approach of how you develop it, because you can't really verify the functions, but you can only evaluate it. And because of that retraining process and that kind of black box model that comes with, with everything on, on the other four, um, the EU decided to create a horizontal regulation of a technology. Um, because of these, these differences um, and because it's obviously a digital technology, you can really scale it um, up to, well, like, like ChatGPT to 100 million um, users in, in a few months. Um, and, and, and with that scale and that power, they said, well, we need to do that horizontally because AI is developing so fast. If we do that vertically in each industry, in, in healthcare, in automotive, in finance, um, the regulation will not be able to keep up. So, so we do that on that horizontal layer, very unique in the world. There are no other um, countries in the world that do a horizontal regulation on AI. Um, the uh, US, uh, the UK follow a vertical one um, others like, like Japan or Singapore do um, and kind of an optional one, um, non-binding um, 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 well, requirements um, or, or recommendations, more or less. Um, so it's, it's a rather unique approach. Um, what it is, is actually the explanation of what I previously explained from that individual AI development to an institutionalized AI development. Most of the things you will find in the AI Act requires the organization to establish processes, establish standard or follow standards, and establish uh, consistent tool chains, and so on. Almost all of the things, I would say, are in the interest of the companies to actually reach that. Now, the issue is that there are a few of those that, from my perspective, are, well, let's see, uh, inconsistent or, or maybe are a little bit too much um, and, and not really necessary. Then there are some legal uncertainties of what that actually means. Um, we don't have that standards yet. We don't even have the tools yet to actually develop it at that, at that level that they want to achieve. And then, it's actually a massive burden from, from a financial and resource perspective from all these companies to get from this um, kind of practitioner level to that professional level because it actually is quite an effort to getting there. If you only do that in Europe, then we have a strategic disadvantage. If we don't get clarity on the tools, on, on, on the processes, on the standards, then we have a strategic disadvantage. If we get that right, I think it's actually an advantage um, because it allows us to really build that trustworthy AI on a much better level as currently AI systems are being developed. Um, so, so it depends a little bit of how the next steps will look like. Um, but I, I think the idea is, is a very valid one. Um, the approach, I, from my perspective, is, is a, um, 
um, sensible one. It makes sense to actually how they develop the AI act. Um, but we need to solve quite a few of, of that um, very essential smaller pieces to do that as a success for us and not to really kill uh, innovation in Europe. And both options are still um, possible. But I, when I, so it's interesting, right? When I, when I uh, then discuss and exchange with a bit of partners also outside of the corporation, you know, individual companies, smaller, mid-sized, larger also, or sort of, and I, I, I discuss some AI act, uh, European AI act, they're still struggling a bit because they're like, oh, it's fuzzy. I don't know. Is it mandatory? Yes, it seems to be. There's rule attached. And, and they, they ask them, how do I cope with this complexity? Because... Um, I don't know, is it just creative, you know, creative element from Europe, <laughs> right? <laughs> European levels, right? Or is it something which now is clear cut? Okay, my use case is in a certain kinds of risk, you know, high risk, low risk, you know, what kind of matter? How do, how do we cope? What do you suggest, you know, companies, startups, engineers, right, to cope with this? Do you have any, any approach to that? Yeah. So, first of all, um, let's look at the process. The process is that we had the original uh, proposal from the Commission that was in April 21. Then we had um, the Council proposal, which was in December last year. And now, since uh, June, we have the Parliament's proposal of amendments to the original AI Act. Uh, so, we have these three different um, kind of uh, proposals. We now started the trilogue in in uh, the uh, in, in Europe with these three parties, discussing and, and trying to align on one version that we then have. And it's um, assumed that we will have that final version at the end of this year. Then we have a transition period of another two years, and then the AI comes into force. So as we speak now, there are many of these um, topics still moving. Um, so we, it's, it's actually really hard to prepare right now. We can just assume that some things are a little bit more um, um, solid, um, which we can then now start to, to think about, to implement, and, and others where we know that they are a little bit more changing. We simply observe and wait until there is a little bit more clarity. Still, there is that transition period, but companies have a development time for a product. So if they develop products now that enter the market in two or three years, they better start with um, co potential compliance to the AI Act now, because once they enter the market, they need to be compliant. So companies need to start thinking about the AI Act now in that phase where there's on the one side a little bit of stability, on the other side, it's very unclear of, of what the regulation will look like and then also what the standards will look like. So it's a very ambiguous situation at the moment. So what we do as Applied AI is we sit together with all our industry partners like you and, and, and all the others um, to develop, let's say, for example, checklists or a structure of how to assess the own use cases and classify them by risk because actually each company needs to assess every use case to see if it's a low risk or a high risk case. So we go through that and, and as it's, again, it's something that everyone needs that either everyone can develop on their own or we actually do that together. We share that and that saves all of us effort and time and money 
um, because we have something. And actually, it's better because we developed it together and every mm -hmm. kind of perspective from the different industries and partners flew into that process. So that's what we're doing and we're providing. Um, we also assessed uh, about uh, a bit more than 100 cases of, of um, if it's a high-risk case or low-risk case, to just give a reference to people, also explaining the, the uncertainties on, in, in those cases. So we try to, to, to do that um, and, and help organizations to get started. But, and, and um, that just as a sneak peek, it actually fits perfectly to Applied AI's mission of empowering the professionals to develop AI. Um, and we will um, build um, in a European ecosystem rather massive um, um, kind of uh, activities on that topic of how can we uh, educate really all the engineers, every organization on being compliant to the AI Act, providing the tools, working with the standardization organizations, so really to lowering the cost for compliance for all industries and, and accelerating that time to innovation because that's what's at the heart of Applied AI. And, and uh, so, so uh, I can promise you we will massively invest in that topic to helping organizations to comply um, with as little effort as possible. And that will be very valuable and uh, will really yeah, be important for all the different companies. And uh, we're re really excited to see what's um, out there to come. And you uh, mentioned earlier the like some of the drawbacks or like the ambiguity also of the EU AI Act and um, you're not the only one because just recently uh, hundreds of representatives of the European economy and maybe just to name a few the CEO of Telecom the CEO of Siemens Energy Celones, Personio have now united to express their serious concerns regarding the proposed EU law on AI um, for instance they mentioned that the draft le legislation would jeopardize Europe's competitiveness and technological serenity without effectively addressing the challenges. What's uh, your view on this? And do you agree with them? And do you think um, this will influence anything? Or is it like kind of too late that they raised their, their voices? It's actually good that you mentioned it because I was one of the ones signing that letter <laughs> also. Um, but for a different reason. And I, I think media picked up the wrong parts of that whole topic. Um, I actually do believe that they missed the if sentence that is kind of the second half of the letter. So they said, yes, it will jeopardize the serenity and all these things if we don't do it right. And that's exactly what I, what I now expect. We need to have an agile approach. We need to rely on the standards in a, in a meaningful way. But we also need to support the economy to actually get um, upskilled to, to how to now comply to the AI Act. If we don't get that right, then we will um, um, kind of lose that, that uh, competitive edge and, and really kind of will miss that, that whole um, kind of boost in, in, in innovation um, and, and we will massively lose against other um, economies in the world. But that if is a very, very important one. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's also what, what, what I'm saying. I, there are, in, in the beginning, there are some, some points where I have a little bit of a different opinion. From my perspective, the EU, um, especially now also in the parliament proposal, 
implemented a lot of very good approaches to helping us to be fast, to be agile. Um, the, it's always a matter of interpretation at the moment. It, it, we can assume that. And, and therefore, I think that the letter, from my perspective at least, I consider it as much more as a kind of a warning of, of, of a kind of a call out to tell them, hey, please consider that and please do that if right in the next couple of months. It can go in both directions and we should focus on the direction where there still will be a industry that is competitive in the future. Otherwise, we just will be the users of these um, um, technologies in the future. Um, thank you for emphasizing uh, that again, because I think now you, you made the point very clear, there are those two directions and now we can like, or the EU can still decide in which direction it will go and will we be able to really get everybody on board or most of the, the companies also on board and prepare them, make them ready. So we as uh, Europe um, can stay competitive and maybe are even at the forefront of AI innovation. And what you're also um like into a lot is um, the, the ecosystems and collaborating across industries, what you also um, laid out a little earlier. Um, and especially if we look into the future, ecosystems are becoming more and more important. They're like global challenges and we need to, to collaborate. And how do you see the role of ecosystems? How has it changed um, in the most recent years? Maybe if you compare it, I, I don't know, to like three years ago, um, especially having a look at the AI space, have you have you seen any any differences there? Mm. Um, so I, I think from from so my my perspective on on the ecosystems, I, I know uh, quite a few of those. Um, and also, as, as you mentioned initially in the global partnership on AI, um, where we kind of try to tackle the challenges that everyone faces, what the future of work will look like, uh, how can we use the, the um, AI technologies for the benefits of, of society and humanity and, and kind of the, the world overall, um, how can we really trustworthy um, um, deploy and, and, and develop AI systems and all, all these types of things. Um, in the past years, these ecosystems were, I, I would say, fascinating pieces of innovation. And um, you, you, you were there and, and you saw all the different fields coming together and, and creating really cool innovations. At the moment, it's accelerating so fast that it's crazy. That, that it's actually really hard to, to follow, to keep up, that the ecosystems kind of implode into single organizations that have the power to kind of drive that whole field, like an open AI, um, like and, and also what we see in, in, in Google, in, in Amazon. I mean, they didn't do anything on, or not much at least on, on, on the, the uh, language models. And in a few weeks and months, they created similar tools by just kind of reassigning hundreds of AI engineers to these fields. And you see them keep really keeping up. And, and you see that 
forming of, of very, very small ecosystems around very few companies that really, really advance. And you see the counter reaction of um, the others that say, hey, wait a minute, we actually need to slow down a little bit. Hey, there is some risk associated with it. Um, is it something that we really should drive from a few companies out there that now want to conquer the world with these um, models and, and, and can create um, the, 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 the kind of create the, the massive market shares uh, um, mm -hmm. or, or, or how that is. And interestingly, the ecosystem of the AI researchers raise their voices and say, well, we actually have been working on these organizations like Geoffrey Hinton um, and say, well, that is maybe now not the very best idea to, to follow that tracks, but we actually have to also react on the, on the ecosystem. So in the last few weeks and months, that existing ecosystems totally changed through the advent of, of the large language models and, and especially then the, the GPT-4 version and, and the open source ecosystems, which is, by the way, also a very, very um, um, interesting ecosystem to look at all the, the um, open source environments um, and, and models that being created there. Um, but, but these ecosystems that we had for the last three, four years really changed and, and look different now. Uh, yeah, that's that's um, and you you put some 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 topic already up with regards to trustworthiness, right? And I think it fuels again, right? There was a bit of a hip and hype uh, four years ago with regards to responsible AI, right? And it seems to be that you know uh, AI and applications, also public accessible applications like you know GPT technologies. Um, have reached now that everybody is also in, in the mixture and we have a renaissance of talking about AI and ethics, I have the feeling, right? And researchers and social science, psychology, cognitive aspects come again and, you know, and, and say like, hey, you know, what are some of the key fundamentals, you know, also a software developer, also AI engineers need to, you know, be aware of that their, you know, their innovation, their contribution is very fastly deployed at scale in these cloud environments, right? How do you see, you know, the role of, of ethical consideration, right? About aspects like responsibility, transparency, bias in such systems. What's your stake on that? Um, I would very much differentiate two topics there. I would mm -hmm. talk about the engineering pieces, which I would kind of summarize in that trustworthy AI term. So how you develop an AI system in high quality, and that includes things, for example, like transparency that you mentioned. It, it, it simply needs to be clear how these systems work. And also it's in the interest of the own developer to understand how these systems work. And maybe if you do something without that transparency, it's something where you also have a bad stomach feeling because you actually really don't know really how, how these systems work. So, so yes, we have some rules there, we have some standards there, but it's, it's something that is, um, can, can be implemented in these processes and standards. And then on the other hand, we have the topic of fairness and, and ethics that is on a use case basis. And typically these questions are really hard to answer. Mm. Um, and it's, it's also depending on the culture you are in. Um, there will be different answers to the same question in the US, 
than in Europe, maybe even in parts of Europe, there will be different answers than in, in Asia, than in other parts of the world. So um, it, it's always a, a kind of a different shades where you say, well, is it more on, on that side, on that side? It's questions like if I have a price, pricing engine, do I want to um, kind of uh, differentiate by buying power and, and give you higher prices than someone else um, because you might be able to pay more um, because you need more expensive devices to, to look at the patient. So, or do I kind of handle everyone uh, uh, at the same price level? You can do that on pricing, but you can also talk about um, prisoners and um, the risk of doing um, the next crime and um, how, how, what's the penalty they will get depending on the um, probability of them um, um, conducting another crime. And then you have very different answers, for example, mm -hmm. now in the US and in, in Germany, where I say here, well, everyone should be considered um, the same, even though we know there are different probabilities, but we want everyone to have a new chance. So the ethics part needs to be answered from a society, um, while the trustworthy part can be answered from uh, government, from regulation. The issue now is that we have faced the questions on the ethical side since many of those questions, since hundreds of years, and we still don't have good answers to many of those questions. And now we should answer that. And it's not now we, but the single engineer who develops these systems has now the responsibility to make an ethical assessment of a use case. So the best, from my perspective, that we can do is to, first of all, establish ethics boards that have experts in there and not leave that decisions to the engineers. We need to um, 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 kind of um, alert them and, 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 and kind of tell them that there are these or these ethical considerations and there are supporting mechanisms for the engineers there. But we shouldn't leave that that decision to them. Um, and on the process side, it's clearly an organizational topic to implement these processes to this enable um, trustworthy AI, transparency, explainability, um, even maybe uh, non-discrimination. I mean, can also run all these statistics there and so on. So that is is more on the process side. Oh, that's more easy said as, as done, right? That's an enormous challenge, I have the feeling, and we are somehow overwhelmed by the capabilities, but also somehow a bit of uncertain, right, on, on the risks. But uh, I, I hear you, you know, there are instruments and we need to develop certain kinds of mitigations and instruments to cope with the complexity. If we stick a bit off positively, then one of these amazing capabilities is obviously applying it to, you know, the needed changes and the most important aspects that we have, uh, applying AI for sustainability aspects, a challenge that we all uh, face on the round. And uh, you most recently actually, and also a, a great, because Applied AI released quite, quite cool uh, white paper, actually also, you're on a bit on reflecting on, you know, AI to support green, European Green New Deal, right? Uh, green Deal. And can you share a bit of, you know, what's, what were your key messages on the role of AI towards the application for sustainability? Mm -hmm. um, yes, I think, so, so that's, that's really at, at, at my heart as well, um, because it combines two of the most important topics, the kind of the transformation in AI, but also climate change. And if we, as I said, um, initially we have that purpose of um, then um, 
shaping a future that we desire to live in, um, the future should consist of an earth that we still can inhabit. So, so that topic of climate change is really an important one. And AI can be a technology to really help. There. And there are many, many um, um, use cases. But what I see is that there is no clear strategy of combining that technology with a very visionary approach by the Commission, which is the European Green Deal. And what we did is kind of to, to try that kind of merge between the technological approach and, and the use case uh, and, uh, approach in, in um, kind of all the different uh, industries and, and categories for, for helping avoid climate change. Um, and what we did is um, we went through what are the technical requirements to make these use cases a success. And depending on the use cases that we found in the different industries of what's the status there. And if we have that, the question is now, what do we need to change to make these use cases a, a success? Because especially in climate change, it doesn't help if we in Munich deploy a nice solution that the scale of that solution is the key. If it has an impact on climate, it needs to be deployed at least European-wide, if not worldwide. So um, so these small, nice little um, use cases that we have in one place or the other, that's all nice. But mm. how you systematically um, change um, requirements to really scale these use cases was one of the topics. And yes, and we went through all those cases and we, we, we said, well, there are a few few topics. You can kind of do that on, on a pricing side with a CO2 pricing. Um, there's a lot of lots of cases actually with distributed responsibilities, right? If you look at um, traffic optimization, so you have you as a driver, you have the cities, you have the, the ones, the infrastructure providers, you have the car manufacturers. So if there's a, I mean, a clear case for real-time optimization of traffic that can be done through AI, um, very, very obvious. The challenge is how do I align now all the different stakeholders? Who carries the responsibility for that optimization? And the answer in an autocratic country like China is a little bit different. They just do it because it's kind of for the benefit of everyone. But in, in, in a country like Germany, the question is not so easy. Um, but, but still, I mean, that's an impact. If you really do that real-time traffic management and, and can really get rid of traffic jams and, and kind of reduce carbon emissions in, in that space. So it's just as, as one of those examples. Yeah, that would be so powerful. But yeah, it's like always like the question like who who's responsible in the end and what like and oftentimes it's like just those small incidents, but we need to or like it seems like we need to have an answer to everything yeah, before we can launch it. Um although like there's so much potential there and it probably also makes sense to start, but it's obviously it's not that easy. And, and um, that is one, maybe one, one thing to add, that is one of my major criticisms to the AI Act, actually. It's already hard to implement these cases. Now the AI Act says we have a risk-based approach. What is the potential risk of a um, real-time traffic management? And it's certainly in the high-risk category. That means there is one single entity that carries the full risk of full compliance to an AI act, which increases the burden of, of actually implementing that solution. Instead of saying, 
Well, that is a key driver for helping tackle climate change. So yes, we know and we consider there is a risk at upfront because it's such a complex environment. We can't actually get rid of all the risks. Then let's try it out. Let's optimize step by step. Let's be aware of these risks. But, but because of that high benefit of that, yes, there's a benefit risk ratio, but it's in that case, yes, we, we should go in that direction. Um, that is not even considered in the act. So it's, it's always a purely risk-based approach and they don't consider the potential benefits that the solutions have and make the trade-off of risk and benefit like you have in, in, in the pharma industry with the drugs where you also have always that risk-benefit ratio. Here we only look at the risk and I, I think that is one of the most dangerous things we can do um, also from a, from a storylining perspective and a communication mm -hmm. perspective of the benefits of AI as a technology. Yeah, maybe just uh, one more thought to add to that, because like if we go out into the traffic today, there's also a risk that we we have to take, right? If I get into my car and I don't know what's what's happening out there, so there's like it's hard to like remove the risk that like for example in that traffic sample completely because it's not even the case today that there's absolutely no risk. But yeah, I think uh, we could talk about this um, for hours for sure. Uh, but maybe let's move on to the next question. If we look a little bit ahead into the future, um, are there any developments or advancements in, in the field of AI that you're most excited about? And also, where do you see applied AI um, in the future? I don't know, in five, five ten years? So <laughs> we, we never talk about the five to 10 years time range. Uh, it's hard enough to project what's happening next year. So or next um, month. <laughs> next month, yes. Um, no, so so I mean I mean clearly what, what everyone now now sees um, thanks to, to ChatGPT is the advancements in, in uh, language models and foundation models. And and um, the I we can talk about that a little bit. Um, and then um, next to that is is um, also all the other AI um, capabilities of how we uh, call them um, in, in the reinforcement learning and the sensory systems in analysis. And there are also advancements. So we shouldn't forget about all the other fields in AI by just looking at uh, the foundation models. But um, uh, let's talk about these foundation models. There, we distinguish from our perspective three different horizons, I would say. The, the first one is the most immediate one. There is what is happening with existing technology. And that is what will affect us in the next half year, maybe year. And that is massive um, education efforts. Many jobs will change. Um, the school system will change the, the whole education landscape, but, but also the services that we're using, design, software engineering, that many industries um, now really at a substantial transformation. And um, that's, that's, that's a massive effort. So on the business model side, on, on the financing side, on the engine, on the capability side for AI engineers, on, on the transformation, on upskilling of people that are affected by these technologies. And so that's a, the, the short term. Then we have that more midterm topic of, do we actually want to have that technology kind of locked into a few major players? What about the open source ecosystems? Can we also in Europe now create European um, solutions that are similarly powerful and kind of what is that on that sovereignty topic? Um, that's a very, very important um, topic that we have to, to tackle, especially also for industry partners. I mean, I, I worked 
for, for ages in the automotive industry and you have always a multi-supplier um, strategy. You simply don't like to rely on, on just one supplier. But what if there is just one at the moment? Um, and, and the third one is that longer term development of, of language models um, where um, you then have these questions about super intelligence, about this kind of letters of the, the, the open letters that are out there. And, and but, but that's kind of the longer term. So short term, massive changes, lots of opportunities, whole industries would really change. And I think it's one of the most exciting times for for innovators, for entrepreneurs to be out there to really create new cool stuff with all the technologies that are out there. The second one is a very interesting one that the one we also um, think about and talk about and try to arrange um, um, kind of ecosystems in Europe of what, what is it that we do in, in Europe on a, on a very high scale. Um, and, and the third one is something that actually we should talk about and think about <laughs> um, because it's, it's, well, it's a few years ahead of us, but, but at some point in time it will be there. And, and I personally underestimated the development of the language models. I thought at the level where we are now, we might be in, in the 30s um, and, and so, so maybe five to 10 years from now, but not now. So I'm very careful about now saying when we reach the next level, because I was so much off that technological advancement. And that's the danger of exponential growth that we always underestimate development. Yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy what has happened just recently. And um, I'm very curious to see where the journey will take us. And we should uh, certainly follow up um, on this conversation um, in a month from now or maybe like one or two years and because so much is changing. Um, Andreas, the time was really flying and um, thanks so much for, for being here with us today, uh, for sharing your expertise, your knowledge with us. And before we finish, we would uh, like to play um, a game with you. It's called Authentic Autocomplete. It's a little Hashtag bit like ChatGPT. Trademark. Hashtag trademark human GPT, human GPT. There you go. <laughs> Andreas GPT. <laughs> And for the closing... I would like um, to ask you to complete a couple of uh, sentences. Are you ready for this final challenge? I am. Yes, let's start. Okay. AI is? The most transformative technology of our times. True. The EU AI Act is? Risk and opportunity, and it's yet to be decided if it's one or the other. Oh, nice. Having a growth mindset means? Considering all the opportunities that we now see and being able also to look out what the next opportunities will be in the future with that development that we see. Totally agree. Applied AI is? The largest initiative on really helping organizations to advance in AI and staying competitive in Europe and kind of the sparing partner and companion for all the companies, organizations, and individuals out there. See, that, that is what I mean. He's really bold, right? That's, I love this boldness in there. <laughs> but he's absolutely right. And last but not least, if I could invent one rule for everyone in the world to follow, it would be the EU AI Act. No, that's not the UAI Act. I, I think um, let's 
also take times to reflect and think about the developments and what it actually means for us as a society. We should not always just follow technological advancements, but we should keep that times of, of reflection and, and thinking about what we're actually doing. Andrea, thanks so much for, you know, this reflections you had just with us in this round. And I had the feeling, right, we could continue, you know, this. I think it hashtag uh, episode two, episode three, episode four, because your insight, your, you know, your drive and your reflections on it are quite nice, I, I must admit. So it's uh, thanks so much for, you know, spending a bit of a time in your business schedule with us here. Thank you as well. And I really enjoyed it. So I, I'm happy to be back at some point in time. There you go. And folks out there, uh, or startups, partners, industry, interests, enthusiasts, right? Connect with, with Andreas on LinkedIn, you know, or, um, you know, catch up on the awesome white papers and the material applied AI initiative is, you know, publishing and engaging with the meetups. And obviously stay connected and stay tuned. There is a lot more to come here and we stay bold, committed and open-minded and we hear us at the next Siemens AI on that podcast. Cheers. Thank you.